Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. The trailer... It's it's definitely a dated trailer. It, it I actually thought it kind of set up the story okay. I didn't have uh, any problems too much with it. 
Um, I was actually kind of surprised that they show some uh, some gore in the trailer that I thought would have not made it into a trailer, like when they're having their shootout and like the back gets blown out of cop and stuff like that. It's in the trailer. Well, and they show the the head split at the when he come climbs up across the semi. Like that's the big makeup effect, yeah. and they show that. Like if there's if there's a a huge giveaway, that's the uh, that that's the big makeup effect of the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they gave that right away in the trailer. I, I, you know, I don't have too many problems with the trailer. I think it works for a dated trailer. Um, I mean, it does feel dated. It uh, feels like they're kind of trying to sell this vampire story in a tricky story that never says, hey, we're vampires. Uh, but you, you get the idea. I guess you loosely get the idea from the trailer. Um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I thought it was okay. What did you think? Uh, spoiler, I'm not crazy about the movie. And uh, and so the trailer is uh, really puts a hat right on top of that <laughs> feeling for me <laughs> and 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 do, not doffs it to me a little bit. <laughs> you you thought you thought the movie was bad. Way do you get a load of me? Um, <laughs> uh, but but it did what it needed to do. Uh, and it 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 gave us some of the makeup effects it shows you what kind of movie this that that at least the marketing people thought this should be and i think it, in some respects that's unfortunate because i think the movie had a lot more potential to be sold in a little bit of a different way um that might have made it more interesting and the poster in particular the poster shows um you know the the main poster shows you know paxton and in his full you know beat up gore uh, you know, outfit, which is all of about 30 seconds of the movie, right? The movie is not representative of that, I don't think. And and so I think it's unfortunate. And and that's why, I mean, I, you get what you get out of the trailer. You get that in the movie. Like if you're, if you're a horror film, uh, you know, aficionado and you want to see the, the vampires romping around it, you get that. But it, it I, I think it's, um, I think it sells the movie short. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's a, uh... I felt like they could have shown a few more uh, big moments, a, a few catchphrases or something just to kind of give it a little bit more. I mean, I like that it actually takes its time with the intro in the trailer, which I thought was interesting that you see quite a bit of kind of the moment where Caleb is after he's been turned, he's stumbling through the field and they pull up in their Winnebago and grab him and drag him in. And they kind of have that conversation in there, you know, when the intro to Severin it's it's kind of I mean you get like a hefty chunk of that little scene. Yeah, very through. patient. Yeah, so it was interesting to see. Um, so yeah, it, it's not my favorite trailer, but you know I thought it did an okay job of of selling it. I suppose. Honey, I'm gonna separate your head from your shoulders. Do it, back. All right. The time's wrong. You might as well just kill me then, too. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the gang's all here. But this time, they're cowboy vampires. We're diving back into Catherine Bigelow's films with her 1987 movie, Near Dark. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy the show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, 
please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. This next week, we're comparing the lists of our favorite modern takes on vampire movies. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. Check out time. This was this movie near dark, Andy. This was pitched as some sort of revisionist mashup of vampire movies and Western movies and a, a dose of biker movies all in one. And it kind of made me mad while I was watching it. <laughs> like this is just because you set a movie in Texas doesn't make it a Western. Out of curiosity, let's get there's a horse in it, right? The horse that plays no significant role, even though they have that build up. They show her the horse. She's clearly a vampire. Show her a horse at night. They have a thing. She and the horse that you expect to pay off later. There's no payoff with the horse. I wanted her to eat the horse. That's what I wanted. Eat the horse. If you're going to show us a horse scared of it, I want the horse better get eaten or at least have the horse be scared of him when he comes yeah, up. In right. His turn. Exactly. Exactly. That's what perplexed uh, me. Oh, lots of those things. Uh, he's got a, a rope and he wears a hat. But just because it was set there doesn't mean it 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 follows the the sort of expected tropes of the Western. And so I'm I'm not crazy about that. Well, I mean, but then you're saying that that are you saying Westerns are only films that are like in the 1800s? Like not at all. OK, no. So like is uh, No Country for Old Men? Does that have elements yes. of a Western? I would I would say that is that leans more western than certainly than this. Also maybe no vampires in that movie. So <laughs> maybe that's the maybe that is the the defining factor. <laughs> so you're but you'd be okay if I, it was like the good the bad and the ugly and the ugly happened to be a vampire. Come, come on. Come on. I know you are pushing as this but you you cannot sit here and tell me that this movie felt like with it came to you with the sense and sensibility of a Western. It, it did in the sense of kind of like the No Country for Old Men type of Western. You know, you have these kind of Western characters. Now, that being said, I don't think that they they tapped into that Western trope, uh, kind of the, the genre conventions as well as they could have. But I do think that some of them are there and I do appreciate them. Um, but I largely still do agree with you. I am just poking a little bit because... <laughs> <laughs> telling you man i i but, think that some of it's there and i appreciate them setting it in this world now you're right should they have called it like a, a a western vampire movie maybe not that does make me think of like the good the bad and the undead um yes but i still think that there is an interesting set of conventions in there with the western um but yes but could you have could you have just picked this thing up you just pick it right up and put it in chicago no, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, it's like calling uh, John Carpenter's van vampires a Western, which, I mean, it's kind of the same vibe. You know, it, it takes place in kind of an old West town and, uh, you know, it's vampire hunters going after this big bad vampire. Is, is that fair to call that a Western? Probably not. Well, know? by the same token, is it fair to call uh, Martin a vampire movie? You remember that one? I don't Crazy. One. Are you serious? Martin. 1970 something? This was uh, Martin is the where he's he thinks he's a vampire and he's he he has to but he can't like he drinks blood but he has to take it out of a syringe because he doesn't anyway I, doesn't it's ring a bell bananas it is just bananas add it to your list Martin that makes me it's, think of the one uh, the Nicolas Cage vampire movie 
Vampire's Kiss. Oh, Vampire's Kiss. Right, right, Peter yeah, right. Right, 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 Peter right, right, Peter Wright, right, 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 ah, Andy. You, you forever Stop distracting that, me. You forever burned that into my head from that movie, so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, now, there, you know, it looks like everyone is having fun in this movie. I know this, this came out uh, after Aliens. Which was, as you remember, it's a movie we quite like. Oh, quite like, yes. Why is it that this movie then feels like the audition tape for that movie? <laughs> well, there's a difference in budgets, Pete. That was a oh, much... a significant, significant difference in budget, right? Yes, yes. This, I mean, this is very much a first film. I mean, yes, Catherine Bigelow had co-directed a film before this um, with uh, Eric Red, who she co-wrote um, this and that other project with, um, and then he had a turn directing, and then she had a turn directing. This was her turn uh, at the helm directing uh her solo feature project and it feels kind of like a first film you know it, it's it's rough around the edges it feels low budget um it you know it just it, it has that overall uh sensibility of somebody who is playing with these tools for the first time on her own and trying to figure out how to make it all work so I think it but does. But you know, I think you give I think you give her too much credit for it looking like a first film. What I find really stunning is that even the cast shows up and delivers performances that feel like first film performances, even though I know they are perfectly capable of doing uh, of of doing you know more interesting, more compelling work, well, more grounded, foundational work. I think that's a little uh, a little harsh to say. I mean, I think that they they actually, uh, other than maybe a couple performances, I think that everybody is. Actually actually doing a a, a a a good job here they're having fun with their roles and it's it's just kind of darker interesting characters and i really enjoy largely the the trio from aliens that was ported over and performed here and i don't feel like they are necessarily you know doing something that's worse i i might say that about um our leading lady jenny wright uh, i felt like she was a little rough adrian pazdar as much as I uh, did enjoy him in, um, oh, what was it, Heroes? Yeah, Heroes, and then he's in uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And yeah, I mean, there, he's all over. I, I think that this, you know, it's earlier in his career, and uh, I felt like he might be a little rough. Um, but, you know, I still, I don't know, I still walked away from this enjoying it, uh, maybe not as much as I was wanting to, but I still enjoyed it enough to say, huh, that was kind of fun. I'd watch it again. I knew you were going to love this movie. I didn't say I, I loved it. it. You said you loved it. I knew you were sitting there just, ugh. Oh, where can I get the Blu-ray? <laughs> There's no Blu-ray, Andy. You can't have it. Yeah, it's a little tricky to track what do you, down. What, what do you think of the, uh, on this film's contribution to vampire lore? Well, that's actually, uh, I think, a, a good question. Because you're right. Going back to this whole idea of of tying this Western feel with this vampire uh, genre and kind of blending it all together. How well does that work? And through that, are they are they really adding more to vampire lore? I do think it's interesting that they set up this whole vampire story without ever saying vampire. They have a lot of the stuff that we normally contribute to vampires, like you know the the you know have to be out at night. They can't be out in the daylight. They uh, drink blood. But it eliminates like the garlic stuff and it eliminates the, the you know, the cross stuff. And it uh, it eliminates a lot of those sorts of elements that can be a little 
a little much sometimes, and I, I felt like it actually worked in a pretty interesting way um, that I liked. I really liked watching these guys. I mean, it's it's interesting because you're hanging out with all of the bad guys through the duration of the film as this um, uh, as Caleb is trying to kind of sort out his his um, allegiances, basically. But um, the vampire lore, it's like his dad finally saves him and uh and gives him a blood transfusion and that actually clears him up and he no longer is a with, vampire and then <laughs> with whose blood with his own blood with his dad his dad with his dad blood they tried so so there's that and and you walked away from that thinking huh resolved no i thought it was strange i did think it was strange oh good i'm saying oh thank but God. it's an element of of vampire lore that they've contributed here which actually they didn't i mean that's actually something that was way back in bram stoker's dracula the whole idea of a blood transfusion yes. um yeah that so, was van helsing's big gig right exactly was, yeah. so i thought it was interesting that they actually took that all the way through and actually made it work and then at the end you end up having a relatively positive ending as as both caleb and may are cleared of their vampirism and now they it's it's i i liked that element of the story i i mean the the actual act of the transfusion might have been a little uh, hard to buy into completely but i still thought it was an interesting way to kind of resolve the story and come through which made it to me feel like okay maybe the western element didn't come through as much but certainly i did feel that it was an 80s look at kind of like you know dealing with your kids who are are falling into the drug culture and here you have this father and sister on this pursuit to find their uh, you know their uh, the son who has fallen in with these bad people and is making bad choices and here they are finally able to pull him out and and help him see the light. I actually thought that was really interesting, and I liked that element of it. See, I, I absolutely see that, and I think that is a, a noble vision of the film, like that that it is in fact a story of addiction. It is a story of of what that looks like and the damage that it could you know ostensibly do to a family. Although we don't see that, you know, we don't actually get any sense of what it's done to the family besides them traipsing along, uh, and and you know trying to follow the trail. That that's not a significant part of the film. Like that's not a significant sort of emotional. Uh, anchor is what's going on with the family um and and so i you know i i don't know i wasn't crazy about that but i get it um the problem is that i think they set up these tests of you know testing us to question our understanding of long established lore and they did it in a way that was not grounded in its own world well enough right um so when I'm confronted with Adrian Pazdar saying, hey, dad, you ever done a blood transfusion? The setup, you have to, to watch so carefully the setup of why that actually makes any sense in the world. It's in the very beginning when dad is actually doing some work on a, one of his animals that you get a sense that he's some sort of a, I, I'm guessing a veterinarian, that he has some equipment around the farm that actually, and some expertise that that would indicate maybe he has the skill to do a, a blood transfusion. And 
it's not enough. It, it's not enough of a grounding in his background that you would think, OK, I'm going to try blood transfusion. That makes sense. I was actually much more interested in seeing what it would be like for him to go back and try to normalize with the family, having the curse of being a vampire uh, in, still inside of him in, in some way. And that's what I that's what I was hoping for. That's what I wanted to see was, you know, if, if we're really going to go all in on this metaphor for drug addiction, being an addict cannot be cleared with a drug with a with a. Um, you know, with a blood transfusion. Uh, addiction doesn't work like that. It's always with you. And let's try and play that side of the story. And so in that regard, this thing ended way too easily for me. It just was like a, a wink and a nod and we're done with the movie. And the fact that she, May, comes along and and we, we resolve her storyline as well, um, it, it was just, uh, you know, it was just too easy. And, uh, you know, to your point, um, there's another element to that that I think uh, makes a lot of sense in this whole idea that it might have been too easy is that for somebody who, quote, is addicted, he never actually completes his turn, right? In order to turn, as we as we keep hearing from the rest of the family, from Jesse and Diamondback, uh, that Caleb has to kill, right? Even May says, yeah, you, know, right. you have to kill. And he always uh, chickens out. He never can quite do that. And the only way that he's surviving, really, is through May's generosity and letting him suck her blood. Mm -hmm. And so as far as kind of the drug addiction analogy goes, and I know I'm kind of destroying my point to a certain extent, <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't completely work because he never really becomes addicted. And it's, yeah. it's only yeah. just that, that, um, that need that he has that he fights uh, every night where he's kind of like, you know, crumpling over clutching his stomach. That's essentially all that's ending here. Yeah. And you know, it, I feel like this film is missing an obligatory scene. Like if you're going to have a movie like this and you're going to put him on the bitter razor edge, uh, we have to have a scene where he can really, you know, thoroughly explore his abilities. Right. We have to see him tortured a little bit by having to let go. Yeah. of the later you know what i mean and in this movie we have the bar scene the bar shootout where he gets to punch a guy twice and revel for a half second in his newfound strength and then he goes sits on a bar stool and watches the massacre but we don't ever get a sense of him being in fact on the verge of healthy, on the verge of exploration and discovery of what he can actually do to make that fight, to make the fight against the turn to kill at all difficult for him, right? It's just that he's got a tummy ache. That's all we actually see portrayed on in, from this character, right? And and when the, the very strangely telegraphed, bandaged, plainclothes police officer holds his hand up to his face. We get to see him sniffing the bandaged hand, uh, which is super awkward. <laughs> but but I just it, it never really resolves in a way that is satisfying and believable for this character to to, you know, to to either become a vampire, become on the verge of a vampire and then have to struggle to let it go. It's it's just, again, too easy. Yeah. I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I, I have to talk about the sensitivity to light because that is the central thing that they they sort of hang their hats on for vampirism in this movie, right? That light is the big bad for these guys. And so they 
train like, you know, a, a military unit to black out cars and to black out, you know, spaces uh, where they're at risk of of being exposed to any light. Because what happens when it's at its worst, they immediately light on fire. Their skin will <laughs> start to burn and then light on fire. And if they're out in it too much, they will explode. Uh, they will explode. <laughs> I That I have never seen. That was awesome. I've seen them. They turn to dust. They turn. I've seen all that. I've never seen the kind of this is like a Michael Bay explosion. <laughs> and it's it actually I think it works like there's a sense of of fear and doom that that, you know, is always following these people, even though at night they are the ones very clearly in power. And I think there are some sequences that work that are sort of comedic that are threatening. Uh, but w- during the daytime, this is really scary, but it works sort of inconsistently. Uh, the the whole light versus vampire thing. Sometimes the light is really dangerous. Sometimes it's not. And I think they, from a production design standpoint, they set themselves up to um, to to have to put the push the limits of credulity, and particularly in the in our deep scene dive tonight that we're going to talk about. So, well, um, yeah. I mean, it certainly depends on 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 who it is, right? Because if it's May after she's trying to help Sarah. At the end, in the climax, you know, she she jumps out of the car with Sarah, and she's she's lightly smoking, and uh, uh, <laughs> but if you're Homer, meanwhile Homer, who's running <laughs> behind her, I mean, he is like he's like you know bursts into flames and yes. falls to the ground and then explodes, as you as you say, um, and so that is uh, you know one of those moments of convenience, and, and sure you do have. Um, uh, Caleb, who gets there and kind of covers her up with a coat, but still, it's like I don't know. I felt like that was a moment where it's like, you know, it's a little too convenient to kind of pick which, you know, who's going to deal with it in which way. You know, I mean, I, I do like seeing, you know, you've got um, uh, Jesse as he's driving, the sun's hitting his hand, and when you look at his hand on the steering wheel, I mean, it's just this charred mass of black you know, bubbly flesh. And it's just, it oh, looks Oh, and fantastic. his eyes too. Yeah, his eyes. His eyes through the windshield are fantastic. You know, through the flame and everything. And just mm-hmm. how kind of the car kind of, you know, rolls to a stop and blows up because these two have just completely caught on fire. <laughs> it was fantastic. I mean, that's a moment that uh, I think is is kind of an iconic moment for this that that stands out as something more in a vampire film that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So... Yes, it does have some issues throughout, and I definitely will agree with that. But I do think that moments of strength, like all of that, even if even if I don't buy Homer's on fire and May not on fire, I still love all of those moments where we see everybody kind of burning up and blowing up. You know, it's those moments, and I should say that it feels very much like they, um, you know, they they were doing the very best that they could with the budget and technology that they had. Yeah, yeah, it it was tough. I mean, trying to come up with ways to get everybody to smoke and everything, and you read about the effects work that they did with all the, I guess you could call them smoking jackets, (laughs) compressed nicotine canisters. (laughs) What that were with tubes coming out of the face? That Uh, it's it's horrible to make them look like they're smoking and and that they they could you know they what they went through was was amazing, especially this kid, uh, Homer, but. I just feel like it's those sequences that, you know, even though 
where you are celebrating them as, you know, real moments of strength. I am celebrating them equally while slapping my forehead. <laughs> I, I feel like that it's those sorts of things that make me think, gosh, this is a movie that actually could be re- remade. Like I could stomach a remake of Near Dark uh, because I think there's something to it. And uh, I, I didn't the movie I wanted isn't the movie that I saw, uh, but but there are hints of it there. Um, so I, I will have one one thing about Homer, and and this is a bit about the narrative. You talk about things that you you want to see in a movie when you're watching. You're like, oh, do that, do that, do that. The greatest opportunity I think they had to really subvert what we've seen in terms of vampire movies and what we are you know willing to stomach, not just in terms of horror, but in terms of just you know shock, um, is in Homer finding Caleb's sister at the vending machine uh and you at five he, in the morning at five in the morning <laughs> right uh and then she's all the one who's judgy mcjudgy pants saying you guys stay up late come on <laughs> you're the one out there getting a coke at five in the morning pre-diabetic uh anyway uh when he sees her and you see that you know that sort of love in his eyes because he knows this is the one and then he takes her back to watch a little tv and the the other uh you know family members don't question it at all there is no question about bringing this little girl into the room they're going to just kind of let him have his way and uh i think so it's going to make me sound like the horrible person they should have let him have her yeah that would have been fantastic that would have increased the stakes uh you know uh, and and that would have been something that was that that wasn't predictable well, and that's one of those moments that would have set it up for a, a different type of ending. Right now, you just have a very positive ending. You know, the good guys win, the bad guys die. That would have been much more uh, an ending in line with horror films where, you know, you might have that little twist right at the end where, you know, Carrie's hand pops up out of the rocks and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that they, they actually were thinking about ending it that way where you get Sarah, Caleb and May all kind of walking in the sun and uh and then Sarah looks down and notices that her arm is starting to smoke. And Oh, that would have been so good. And yeah, they gave up on that idea um which I guess goes to show at least at this point in um their careers they weren't quite ready to jump into something that was going to be quite as dark as that. Yeah, well, I you know, I don't think we've ever seen that sort of a thing on screen. I think we've we've had hints of it. I don't think we actually saw, and this is even since then. I don't think we saw Kirsten Dunst get turned uh, in Interview with the Vampire. She was already a vampire. No, when we, we see her. her turn. We do. Yeah, we see her die, and then her hair curls. Remember, her hair all of a sudden is like <gasps> super curly. Oh man, that all came back to me all at once. Wow. Yep, you're right. Okay, so we did. But did we? Do you remember if we saw Ralphie Glick uh, in Salem's Lot? I don't well, think we did. I think now he was we're jumping way too far back. I, I he was that. taking he was taking kids for the master, and I don't think we actually ever saw him get uh, get turned. So interesting. Uh, so I take it back. But again, that was after this movie, um, yeah, Vampire. But uh, I think that would have been a, a bold thing to do. Yeah, uh, it, it would have been. Look at me going with the horror vibe. But that being said, they still, I, I still appreciated that. I mean, here they were with a 13 year old kid already doing what Kirsten Dunst did a few years later in interview, yeah. where we had this, this old soul who was incredibly frustrated because he had lived for decades stuck in the body of this 13 year old boy. 
and I loved that. I mean, I it's like I felt now I, I can't say if I felt this when I first saw this movie, but watching it again, I'm like, how refreshing to see that in a movie from 1987 where you have this this frustrated kid um, who is essentially a, an old man living in this body. I loved that. I totally agree, actually. And and the kid was fantastic. Uh, Joshua John Miller played uh, Homer. He was great and totally believable. Absolutely. Totally believable. Yeah. He was one of those kids at the time who was, I mean, he was in River's Edge and mm-hmm. this, and he'd been in some TV stuff, and he was in Halloween 3, and he just kind of had that vibe. You know, he seemed like a kid who uh, was tapped into something a little uh, a little more adult or darker, you mm-hmm. know? You know what I did? Speaking of the different characters, um, you know, we have our vampire family, uh, and the one that really stuck out for me, um, and I think for a lot of people, is Severin, Bill Paxton. Um, he's such a, a, a wild uh, cowboy, not cowboy character, but he's just kind of that wild, crazy vampire character. And of the group, he seems kind of the most who's like the typical vampire sort of guy, you know, uh, just willing to kind of kill. I mean, the other ones are too, but they there's something about the way that Jesse acts that that seems a little different than the way Severin acts, you know. And what I love so much about Severin is the the brilliant way we meet him. I mean, this is right after. Um, Caleb is struggling through the, the sunny, uh, day in the field and the, they pull up in their Winnebago and grab him. And, uh, and he kind of, you know, we, we, we join Caleb as he looks up and he, he's staring right into, uh, Severin's face and Severin is just like, howdy, I'm going to separate your head from your shoulders. Hope you don't mind none. And that's just like such a great character intro. And like there are moments like that in the script where I feel like, okay, there might be some some big issues with the story. But I will say, I think that uh, the writers, Catherine Bigelow and Eric Red, had a good handle on these characters and they found ways to write some really interesting moments for them. This being one of them. Uh, I agree with you on the character, but man, could I I just ran out of patience with Paxton. <laughs> Is that I... just just his character in general? The portrayal, I think, of the character like I I get that I get who this and why is it that I have trouble with with Severin, but I I don't have trouble with a very similar sort of character in Aliens. I don't know. I don't know why that is, uh, because I really quite like him. And in fact, the more I have seen him, the, the older he's one of the, another one of those actors where the older he got, the the more interesting I think he, he became. And uh, in, in this case, I man, the, the scene you described is a great character intro. And why do I not? I, I just have trouble um, seeing through the Bill Paxton-ness of it to actually get my head into who this guy really is. That's interesting. So huh. It's a character that I, I think was there is a rift between the performance and the writing of it. Uh, and and so, um, yeah, I, I struggled with it. I struggled with it all the way through. Anyone else or was it just him? Uh, no, there really wasn't. I actually found the the portrayal of uh, uh, Lance Henriksen uh, portraying Jesse, I thought was, you know, it was that brood. In, in fact, his sort of brooding portrayal of, of Jesse, the kind of he is the sort of supreme demon that scene in the hotel room where they've they've been playing cards and 
there's that sort of high angle down on him and he's got his hands kind of loosely draped in front of him and then he flops them out as if to say <laughs> whatever you know I, it, it was that is like the central moment that defines um you know who he is to me just like i he has all the power and all of this sort of weird demonic kind of elegance and um, and so little care for the world. Um, in fact, watching the behind the scenes stuff, I, I can't remember now what it was called. You pointed me to it, the the making of thing. Yeah, right. The, the yeah, I can't remember. Either, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, it's uh, it's on YouTube. We'll put a link to it. Anyway, he the way he talks about getting ready for this character made Lance less likable to me and Jesse more. <laughs> <laughs> is that that's that's a weird thing a little bit yeah <laughs> well it, it was funny i you know i read that he drove to uh uh across country to the filming location which i i might, might have just been arizona or kansas mm-hmm. i don't know where they were at this time but and he picked up hitchhikers along the way and he wore his wardrobe plus his long nails and his hair extension <laughs> And he imagined that he was Jesse as he picked these people up. I'm like, that's super creepy, man. Super creepy. Well, and I don't think I've ever heard this before, but hearing Paxton talk about Lance preparing for the film, he said, yeah, Lance is the kind of guy who just goes and will dump thousands of dollars into props and, you know, anything that he can find to get himself into the character. And so I hadn't seen him for a while and he comes back and he shows me that he had this guy like manufacture these really thick, gnarly fingernails and he had them put on like glued onto his fingers. And then he went home and ripped at the edges of them and broke them all off with pliers to make them look that sort of ripped up rugged look. And he just wore those around (laughs) while they were shooting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just a thing that he that's oh that's lance doing his lance thing yeah <laughs> it's so good i love it uh it, yeah. it makes him sound like the ultimate uh you know i mean we He's thought full method, Hoffman right? was bad yeah uh, in marathon yeah. man but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> acting my dear boy acting we've got to talk about the the love story because the love i think you and i both had a problem with the love story this is just it's a such a typical kind of Hollywood screenplay um, way for characters to fall in love after they meet. And it's just such an incredibly short meeting. And here we have May and Caleb and he kind of picks her up and there's this this little, um, uh, you know, uh, romantic tryst, I guess you could say, that they have out with his horse at his ranch Um and uh, and then they kind of fool around in the car and she bites him and stuff. But then all of a sudden she's like head over heels in love with him and doesn't want him to get killed by these guys. And it's like, wh- where did all this come from? You know, I can appreciate why he sticks with her because she's the only one saving his skin. But what what was it that that made her turn so quickly? I, I It was just one of those those screenplay elements that I felt like I just I never could quite buy into. It's the Romeo and Juliet thing, right? I mean, yeah. why did they fall in love like the way they do? Yeah, so exactly. quickly. The way they, you just have to kind of write that off. And in this case, you know, is the world uh, around it built in such a way that makes that element believable? And I think for me, it is not, uh, and and it's sort of frustrating. And um, you know, in particular, you look at cultural elements that are super dated, and having him like lasciviously hit on her for eating ice cream. Uh, in front of the general store, 
uh, is uh, it, it just it was a tough way to start the movie and not look just out of place. Well, and not only that, I mean, and it's obviously uh, of its time, but, you know, looking at sure. it through today's eyes, you have moments like, you know, he stops the car. Here she is frantically freaking out, saying, I've got to get home. I've got to get home. And he stops his car and says, well, not until you give me a kiss. Yeah, right. Like, uh, yeah, hashtag me too. It's, it, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't doesn't work so well these days. It's a little rougher. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you look at it through the, the eyes of the eighties, I guess, but still, I mean, and obviously he gets his, his, uh, comeuppance when he gets turned into a vampire, but still, uh, Aha, comeuppance, <laughs> take that. We already talked about the, the sort of pairing between Bigelow and Eric Red. Uh, and I don't know, maybe we should do, uh, Undertow. The other, the, I think that only made it to TV. Yeah. I don't know. I the had Eric never Red even Red. heard of it before until oh uh, really yeah had you you had yeah it has it has uh real people in it it was uh, uh lou diamond phillips of course uh charles dance but andy mia sarah this is where mia sarah went oh wow uh-huh uh-huh interesting interesting this yeah. is not the movie i was thinking of what movie were you thinking of? I was thinking of uh, the other movie that Catherine Bigelow did uh, before this one, uh, The Loveless. Yeah, that's not this movie. No, The Loveless is the one that I was I was confusing this with. The Loveless has Willem Dafoe in it. Yeah, um, that she also co-directed and co-wrote with Monty Montgomery in that case, and that is mm-hmm. trouble ensues when a motorcycle gang stops in a small southern town while heading to the races at Daytona. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So anyway, well, that's the anyway. loveless, which yeah, maybe we'll end up in our in our final Catherine Bigelow series. It just might. Mm-hmm. Did you get anything out of the uh, out of the behind the scenes that that you thought this is this is earth changing? This changes the way I I see this movie. Nothing like that. But what I did appreciate was you know I mean this is how people make it in the in- industry and you know she and and Eric Red were they were writing spec scripts you know they were struggling filmmakers and they you know they pitch it to a money guy who who appreciated them and and he told her he's just like cuz cuz they had it as part of the deal where you know she ha- she's writing she's she's directing it mm-hmm. and uh, that was part of the deal and he said okay i you you're smart you have a good sense of the story i will give you 3 days and uh, at the end of those three days, if I don't feel like you are able to handle directing a film, then I'm going to take it and I'm going to uh, get somebody else to finish directing the film. And, I, you know, it just I, I like stories like that where you go, OK, look, Catherine Bigelow, there was that point in her career where she was that struggling artist and had to prove herself. And she clearly has time and time again since then. But way back mm-hmm. then when she was untested, I mean, that was kind of the big moment. And she obviously knew what she was doing and they were satisfied with the the end product. Well, and, uh, you know, it, it really underscores the um, uh, just the, the importance of timing. Right. Because, you know, she sits down with um, Stephen Charles Jaffe and says, you know, I've got this script and and, you know, we've we've done this thing and I want to direct. And he happens to say, you know, right now, at this point in time in the universe, I am looking for low budget original material scripts. I'm looking for that right now. And that is a window that opens and closes and you don't know when and you don't know how. And they happen to be in a place where they could take advantage of it to uh, significantly. 
those are those moments. You got to keep uh, keep your eye out for them. So it was a fantastic opportunity for them. And uh, and yeah, and you you know, regardless of any issues that there might be with the film, I think that it does exhibit a a, a an, an assured hand by Bigelow as she told this story that made a film that people still talk about. You know, it's it's it is kind of this cult classic and something that stands out whether you know regardless of story issues i think there are still enough elements in here that make it stand out and that show Catherine bigelow is somebody who knows how to direct a film let's talk about the deep scene dive let's do it the uh, our, our friendly cast our family has uh blacked themselves out uh in a uh, in a bungalow and knock 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 on the door the police are here mm. and now we have a shootout and it's broad daylight Boy, is it ever. Why do you like this scene? It's it's just a it's a fun shootout scene that takes place between these vampires hiding inside this bungalow that is getting riddled with bullet holes that uh, each one lets in just these fantastically brilliant shafts of light that are just nothing but torture for these guys. And and these cops outside and and, uh, you know, the the vampires are completely fine blowing as many people away as possible, knowing that, you know, every time that they shoot through the walls, it could be another shaft of light that that sets them on fire. Um, It it made for a really fun shootout scene uh, leading to what I thought was a pretty exciting way to, you know, escape where Caleb basically has to run out covered in a blanket to get their van so that he can crash it into the building and allow everybody else to get in and drive off. Um, I thought it was just, it was, it was really a fun way to kind of see a vampire shootout and escape. It's not something that you would have expected to see during broad daylight. So to that, I, I, I gave the, the writers and, uh, and Bigelow as the director, a lot of credit for creating something that I thought was just visceral and entertaining. I do, too. I think just setting it in the daylight, you know, just knowing that this is the kind of threat they're about, like the second you hear the knock on the door, this is the police, you know that this is a different kind of threat. And it changes your allegiance a little bit, right? Because now you're on the side of the uh, of the family, right? You want them to be able to get out. You want them to be able to, to find a way to fight their way out, uh, you know, it, because we get to be inside the room and we get to be with them watching these shafts of light burn, burn them, um, sometimes selectively, uh, <laughs> like I was talking about. I mean, they, they, this is what I mean. Like the, the production design is actually really cool. Stephen Altman and, and Diane Perryman, uh, the and, and obviously the camera, Adam Greenberg, uh, is it's amazing. And I think this sequence sets them up to to create some absolutely stunning visuals. Every time a new uh, you know, bullet shoots through the walls, we have these just striking shafts of light, really hard to capture uh, as well as they did. And it just looks great. Um, I, I just it, this is the one of those sequences that really makes me wish for a remake with a little bit uh, of a bigger budget, because I think we could see um even more of what they hinted at, you know, in some cases you'll see a shaft of light come through and it actually lights some some skin on fire through a shirt. Uh, and then later, uh, you, when you see the entire thing completely riddled with bullets, it's it's got to be just, you know, bright light uh, in, in the room and, and, you know, people crossing shafts and you don't see any of the smoke at all. And so that's the thing that, you know, that it suffers at the hand of its own budget, um, that the ideas just just couldn't. It couldn't quite be afforded. Um, 
and in you know I guess we have the rescue itself where Caleb runs across the field. Why did they park their van quite so far away? <laughs> right. It's not like there's anybody near this bungalow. <laughs> they could have parked right in front of the- They take every other precaution to black out this thing, and they park the van uh, like 100 yards away. <laughs> Plus you have Jesse Just- wearing, you know, he's got those like those... Uh, those blackout glasses that he wears around. Yeah, like those welder's goggles. Yeah, those welder's goggles with that like nose guard, which looks like, you know, what what uh, uh, lifeguard would wear or something. <laughs> it's like the strangest outfit that he uh, ha- that he has as far as that goes. Um, it, I, yeah, it's a really fun scene. And and I think you're right that uh, that they capture between, uh, you know, um, Bigelow and Greenberg, they capture some beautiful interior photography of this place where you get a lot of silhouettes of these these shadowy vampire figures as as they're kind of hiding the shadows with these shafts of light behind them it just makes for just a really beautiful scene and i think the bigelow really starts showing her um her strength as an action director right away uh, you know, showing that she can cut the scene together. I understand kind of the locations where everybody is. I always have a good handle on all of that as it's going, um, leading up through uh, through the escape. Like she she does a great job at, uh, at running things as an action director, and I I really appreciate that in sequences like this or even the bar that happened uh, right before this one. Although mm-hmm. I do question. Why did the police bring their witness to the scene with them? Why is James right. LaGrose in the car? <laughs> yeah, he's in the car. It's one of those, oh, we were looking for you moments. Like, come on. Come on. <laughs> oh, that made me roll my eyes a little bit. I'm like, I don't know. I, I will say, I, you know, in terms of the production or in terms of the just overall marketing uh, design, uh, this scene gave no end of great ideas for what to do with the the poster art uh you know all the different varieties of the poster uh having the shafts of light coming out of the bodies yeah very very cool yeah it's it's a really fun scene and you're right it's it's nice seeing them uh take the opportunity to kind of uh turn the tables on on our expectations here where as you say we are siding with the bad guys as they go through this whole thing um both Caleb and the entire vampire family as they try to escape the cops. Um, although I, I also was wondering, why don't the cops follow them? I mean, you know, they hop in the van and drive away, but you know, the cops, I mean, it's not just one police car there. Yeah. They, they, there were a bunch of there cops. Are a lot of cars, yeah. a lot of cars yeah. and they all just kind of sit and wait. I also was curious. I'm like, okay, so they're all very happy with, with Caleb after this whole thing, because, you know, he, he risked his life and he went, ran through the sun and set himself on fire so that he could get the van and rescue them. And everybody's like, oh, you're one of us now and everything. But at the same time, it's like, he's the reason that they were in this situation in the first place, which they reminded us very strongly at the end of the previous scene where they were, they were very upset with him because he let James LaGrosse's character get away escape. Yeah. And so, and so how quickly they forget, I guess, you know, I love this conversation, Andy, because it feels like around every corner, there's another opportunity for you to talk yourself into my side. (laughs) Curse you. (laughs) 
Um, the special effects, uh, uh, again, a tip of the hat to Dale Martin, uh, special effects coordinator, and uh, we should say uh, Gordon Smith is a guy. We we alluded to the the vampire burn up effect, uh, and you know they say as a quote, one of the technical challenges of near dark was to realize several extended sequences where the vampires burn up in daylight. Uh, special effects makeup artist Gordon Smith devised a prosthetic makeup, which concealed tubes on the faces of actors. on the faces of actors. The tubes were also hidden, hidden under the clothes of the performer and were connected to a vice that smoked tobacco under pressure carried on a harness. Each actor had a valve to shut off the system if they got sick or nauseous. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They could just turn on their smoking face. <laughs> That's so funny. So good. Uh, paired with with Dale Martin and Gordon Smith, we also just need to give a shout out to uh, Everett Creech, who is the stunt coordinator, who, uh, you know, in, in scenes like this, I think it shows clearly how well this team worked together to uh, really amp up these action sequences do you miss uh tangerine dream oh eventually the conversation was going to turn to them was <laughs> yep you knew you know you knew it tangerine dream it's an interesting uh an interesting group of musicians that made some interesting uh, film scores i can't say that i really dislike them and what they've done in the world of film i think they have made some interesting um uh, film scores. They're not my favorite. We talked about them last, I think, with Thief. That might be the only yeah. time we've actually talked about them. I, it's not their strongest work here. It's uh, it's Tangerine Dream. I guess that's the thing. Is like I listen to it and it's exactly what I expect of Tangerine Dream. <laughs> <laughs> what was the uh, what was the song that was playing in the bar? Oh, that was fantastic. It was um, Fever. Yes, the right, cramps right, right. singing fever. fever, the cramps yeah. fever, right? Uh, covering so it, yeah. that that I thought was was really particularly great because it sounds it opens so much like Tangerine Dream, like it feels so much of a piece of the entire score. Uh, uh, that that I think Tangerine Dream was trying to kind of kind of do here. It, it, it I, I actually I I thought it was it was fine. I am actually I think more of a fan of Tangerine Dream than you are. Um, but I agree with you. This is not um, this this is not my favorite uh, of of the scores. They had seven scores in 1987. They were busy. Yeah, but was it, what's funny is that none of them were huge. And I know you're going to say three o'clock high. Exactly. I'm going to say three o'clock. And I can't. That again is not something that imprinted on me uh, as well as it did uh, to you. We need to do this. is This is why we should do our guilty pleasure series again, just so I can talk about that film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like it's been so long since we've done that. I've got some that I'm dying to talk about. Well, I, I yeah, you've I, been waiting forever know. to talk about. Um, Shit, shish, oh, shish. Okay. Shish. <laughs> Your favorite Bruce Willis. Shish, shish. Let me tell you a little story about a man named Shish. I, you know, I will say, unrelated to the film we're actually talking about, um, Richard E. Grant is wildly over the top and quite hilarious in that film. So there, I'm giving you yes. one point for that. El Machina del Oro, <laughs> the gold machine. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Oh, That's dear. coming, Andy. All right. Oh, I'm looking forward I hear to that it. train coming. Three o'clock Woo. high versus uh, <laughs> Hudson Hawk. There you go. Oh, boy.
Other cast, and Adrian Pazdar, we've talked about him, is Caleb Cotton. He's, uh, he, what happened to his voice over the years? He got, he got, he, is, as he, he was so sweet. He, he was, was so sweet and cherubic in this movie. <laughs> and now he sounds like he's, he, well, he's, he sounds like a buzzsaw. Well, it was, he's great. He's great. It was, but. it was strange. I was, from watching this film, I thought, okay, I mean, he still hangs out, you know, he's with his dad and his little sister. Okay, is he supposed to be like a 17-year-old sort of high school sort of kid? But he was born in 65, so he was like 22 when they made this. But, you know, I guess yeah. I guess that's how it is. So maybe it was one of those things where they're like, okay, he's 22, but he's playing 17. I don't know. I didn't yeah. completely I buy could... him being as young as I think they were trying to make him in the film. What about Jenny Wright? She she was only I think she'd only been turned three years before. Yeah, she's relatively new to this. I you know I uh, I didn't care for her uh, that much. She uh, she's one of those actresses that had been kind of around and uh, then disappeared in the nineties. Uh, she quit the film business entirely, and nobody knows where she is. But um, I don't know. I I really kind of struggled with her the most out of everybody. I just never completely bought into her. The the whole time I couldn't get this, couldn't shake the feeling that it didn't feel like she really wanted to be there. And I don't mean just like in the family, but in the movie. Yeah, I just yeah, and I I I I, I don't know if I contribute that to her as an actress or to the writers uh, just not giving her enough with her part to do. Or or what? But I, I never quite got uh, not sold with with May. Uh, and maybe it's also just because of the frustration of the love story. You know, that that could be part of our frustration with her as a character. Uh, Lance Henriksen uh, was, you know, he's Lance Henriksen. I thought he was great. And I love Jeanette Goldstein and Bill Paxton, like that whole trio of the aliens. <laughs> Group, you know I what's just... great is to see Jeanette Goldstein with a, a you know more of a part in this. Oh yeah, crew. Yeah, you know she's she's fantastic. Yeah, and man, she had just the the best hair. I just love that giant like uh, the blonde like bleach blonde hair with kind of the roots showing and everything. She just she just looked like the vampire version of the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> totally. Well, and they told her apparently, you know, you don't have to do the blonde. We can we can get. She said, "Are you kidding? That's why I'm doing this movie. I'm doing the blonde." <laughs> oh, I just loved it. Uh, and Tim Thomerson, Andy, oh, yes. as Lloyd Colton, yes, uh, as Dad. Uh, yeah. You know, just the fact that I mean, here's the guy from Volunteers, and it was just <laughs> seeing him again. Just, just gave me a great joy. And you know, I actually like what Catherine Bigelow says about these two, these two fathers. How you know, how for the character of Caleb, he ends up having having a father of uh, the darkness and a father of the light. And uh, in a way, you're seeing these two these two entities, these two fathers fighting for the son. And I thought that was actually a pretty pretty interesting little element of the story here. Tom Thomas, man, he has been in a lot of stuff. Oh, you know this? He's still busy. Two hundred, two hundred and four credits so far. Yeah. I was looking to see because I know I know there are some things that I, I'm, you know, really really love him in, and you can't just scan his list of credits. No, he's uh, he's a busy it's, man. It's long. Did you see one of the things that that he's he's no. uh, they're wrapping up on right now, called "Bring Me the Head of Lance Henriksen." <laughs> And this is, let me just read this description to you. This is just brilliant. I can't wait to see this. When 80s B-movie icon Tim Thomerson wakes up one day to realize the acting roles are not coming his way anymore, he sets out on a quest to find his former co-star Lance Henriksen to discover his secret of Hollywood longevity and gets more than he bargained for in the process. 
Oh my god. <laughs> I'll see that movie. I'll see that movie. That is fantastic. Yep. Just brilliant. This Joshua John Miller uh, guy he plays uh, Homer the boy. I don't know. Is is he the 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 like box office karma for this movie? I don't know why. Well, you know, so he is he plays Homer. He's the the old soul in a young boy's body. And two months almost to the day prior to this movie opening in theaters, the Lost Boys opened in theaters. Joshua John Miller is Jason Patrick's half brother. Jason Patrick obviously uh, starred in the Lost Boys. So is this is the whole problem with Near Dark that it was actually a family feud? <laughs> that is funny and <laughs> sad. Funny and sad. It's it's yeah. sad. It's really sad. It actually is is really sad. But I have to tell you, Andy, I have much fonder memories of the Lost Boys. Well, yeah, I mean, th- but that also movie, much bigger budget. Well, and also a movie that I think was more made for us. At that age, you know, that was very much a movie I could watch in 1987, and I felt like those kids were me. This is not something that I would say is, uh, you know, uh, that 13-year-old or 14-year-old or 15-year-old can watch and really enjoy. I felt like this is more of a kind of an adult uh, vampire movie. No, you have a really good point there. It's not like that. There was another one. Was it a Silver Bullet? Yep. You remember that one? Yep. Yeah, the, the werewolf. werewolf one. There, yeah. was, there was the whole sort of category of of these movies that, that right. were were made for us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, good, good point. As always, Andy, standout point. <laughs> so, jumping back to the very beginning, the very first shot of this film is an extreme close up of a mosquito uh, drinking the blood of uh, Caleb before he smacks it and squishes it. Right. Yeah. Remember that. Yes, I do. So the filmmakers realized that in order to have a real mosquito interacting with a real actor, they actually had to grow this mosquito from scratch because they couldn't, you know, rely on the possibility that it could be a mosquito that might have been uh, that might have contaminants in it. Right. So they actually had to grow a mosquito from scratch. And it was the six month process of them trying to get this mosquito grown so that they could get that first shot. So they could murder it. So they could murder it. I have an uncomfortable amount of trouble rationalizing <laughs> that story. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this story long after. Are you kidding me? They harvested a mosquito to smack it. Yeah. Six. Ha- allow it to grow. Allow what? It to, allow it to feed. To thrive. And, and what then, did they? What were they feeding it? I I don't know. Would it just somebody would just have to stick their hand in every day? No, I would assume that that would potentially be introducing contaminants to it. So I would assume that they would have to feed it stuff that would be like, you know, processed food for a mosquito. I, I don't even know. Like, what, what if it was just that actor's blood? Like, like that's only, all. It was just Adrian. that one. It was only Adrian who. Oh, this is horrible. Yeah. This is worse than anything in the movie. <laughs> So crazy. I just, I love this story. It's the strangest thing to go through in order to make that work. Not a good thing. Yeah. All right. So what's your big Arizona connection? Well, part of this, I I guess right toward the beginning of the film, they filmed it in Coolidge, Arizona. Um, They, I I don't exactly know why they ended up uh, deciding on Coolidge. It's a little kind of a, um, a farm town on the southeast edge of the phoenix valley uh, as you're heading down toward tucson 
that's where they start the film off. And and I oh. think they filmed it in a number of uh, places, but uh, yeah, they start it start it there. So um, yeah, kind of. Did you see? Little... Did you see your house like in the distance? I was a little farther away from that, okay. but yeah, it looks like they filmed in Casa Grande, which is near there, and Eloy, all kind of in that area, and then Oklahoma and Los Angeles, somewhere somewhere over Macho Grande. <laughs> All right, Andy, it's time. Uh, tell me, I almost don't want to ask, how did it do an awards season? This wasn't a, you know, it's a it's a small indie genre movie. It wasn't anything too big. It, it did, though, get one win and eight other nominations. The win was at the Brussels International Festival of Fantasy Film, where Bigelow won the Silver Raven Award. Uh, for Best Director, and that was uh, in 1988. It did get a number of nominations at the Saturn Awards. We always talk about that. It's the International Horror, Sci-Fi, and Fantasy uh, Film Awards. It was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to The Lost Boys. It, it was uh, Bill Paxton was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Richard Dawson from The Running Man, which was... Uh, that, that checks out. I think yeah. that's fine. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, Jeanette Goldstein. She lost to Anne Ramsey from Throw Mama from the Train, which I think is also fine. That's fine. Best performance by a younger actor, uh, Joshua John Miller, lost to Kirk Cameron for Like Father, Like Son, the fantastic nope. Dudley Moore vehicle. <laughs> nope, that's not a good win. <laughs> and then Catherine Bigelow uh, lost uh, Best Director to Paul Verhoeven for RoboCop, which I think is completely fair. Yeah, that checks out. And then, interestingly enough, back in 2003, the Saturn Awards gave their Best DVD Classic Film Release Award, and it was nominated, but it did lose to E.T., which was... Uh, coming out the same year so there you go hmm. what about uh, so this whole time all i can think about the more we talk about it the more i want to see this movie remade yeah and they actually started a conversation about this back in 2006 um it was they were talking about a co-production between rogue pictures and platinum dunes entertainment um and i think bradley fuller who is a platinum dunes, dunes producer um who was pushing for this thing to happen said that, unfortunately, we have to put it on hold because at this time, you may remember, there's a little uh, vampire film that came out called Twilight that was all the rage, and they felt that this romance between the human and vampire in Twilight would uh, adversely affect the remake, the potential remake of Near Dark. So it was shelved and never has been talked about since. I think a remake would be better than Twilight, Andy. You know what's funny is if you look at the... um, the uh, Blu-ray case or the DVD case that did come out around uh, 2000 around, around this time, mm-hmm. they redesigned it to look like it's a Twilight ripoff. Like you have Adrian Pazdar's oh. face and kind of the, the the blue lighting, and it's just it's ridiculous. It, it makes you think that you're going to watch Twilight, uh, one of the sequels. It's just terrible. I couldn't believe it. Oh, I didn't even. I can't believe now that uh, Twilight near dark. Near dark. It's kind of twilight. <laughs> Are you kidding? I know. That just occurred to me. Vampires. Yeah. So stupid. How did you do it at the box office? Well, Catherine Bigelow, uh, for her indie film, got a cool $5 million for this solo directorial debut, which is about $10.6 million in today's dollars. Her movie opened October 2nd, 1987, opposite Big Shots and Like Father, Like Son, the uh, fantastic Kirk Cameron award-winning film. Unfortunately, it was following on the heels of, as we already said, the whopping summer vampire success that was The Lost Boys, and her little movie just couldn't find its audience. It opened in lucky 13th place, where it stayed for two weeks before it left theaters entirely. 
The movie wow. only made three point four million at the box office, or seven point one million in today's dollars. While it since has developed a cult following, at the time the movie ended up with an adjusted loss per finished minute of thirty six point four thousand. But at least it wasn't the end of Bigelow's career. Two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> to ouster. Yep. That's crazy. I know. Well, I, I mean, I get, based on how I felt watching the movie, I guess I can sort of, sort of see that. Uh, this, Yeah, at least it wasn't the end to Bigelow's career. This was not my favorite movie. There were some strong elements in it, some fantastic visuals, love the treatment of light, uh, generally annoyed by a couple of the narrative choices and Bill Paxton. Uh, and and that ended up being it ended up being a fantastic uh, audition tape for other movies yeah i i enjoyed it more than i uh thought i would i guess uh i i didn't love it i certainly have problems with it but um but it's certainly something that i'd be interested in watching again so that's where i came out with this one then it's time andy we need to rank it all right let's do it and over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, you'll see our list of movies, or you can just tap on Flickchart in the show notes, and it should take you right over to the website where you can add it to your own list of movies and see how it stacks up to ours. Well, first up, we have Near Dark, or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the 2009 version with Numi. I will take Numi, please. I will as well. Near Dark, or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I will take uh, the Baron, please. Yeah, I guess I will, will too. Yes, you will. (laughs) (laughs) Near Dark or The Emigrants? I'm going to take Near Dark. Me too. Near Dark or Star Trek Insurrection? Insurrection. Near Dark for me. No. You know that's wrong. (laughs) No, you're right. Actually, Insurrection, that's right. I enjoyed that a lot more than I had remembered. See, and I you already see forgot. What, you see what happened? You already forgot. Yes, that's the curse <laughs> of that movie. It really is. Uh, yes, I will say Insurrection. It <laughs> has its issues, but so does Near Dark. Uh, it's a it's the Tim Thomerson matchup. Near Dark or Volunteers? Volunteers all the way. <laughs> Andy? Volunteers. Oh, I've been waiting to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. This is the one. Near Dark or Star Trek Into Darkness? I will take Near Dark, please. How about Star Trek Into Near Darkness? <laughs> I will take Star Trek Into Twilight. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Uh-huh. Okay. One, two, three. Scissors. Oh. Uh, man, and I had already planned like 10. <laughs> I've been memorizing <laughs> Got it. Got it a pattern. <laughs> Near Dark or the Hudsucker Proxy. Near Dark for me. Hudsucker Proxy. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh-huh. One, One two, two, three. Paper. Oh. Man, not having luck. Nice, nice. Near Dark or Bull Durham? Bull Durham for me. Yeah, Bull Durham. Near Dark or Say Anything? Say Anything for me. Say Anything. Well, that puts Near Dark at 299 out of 341. It's pretty far down there. It's It's at about 12%. So (laughs) there you go. What does this do for your personal flick chart? My personal chart ended up at 1636 out of 3925, which is a 58%, lower than I actually would rank the film. But uh, that being said, I felt like as I ranked it, it ended up in the right spot. 
I mine ended up at uh, six ninety five out of one thousand twelve, or thirty one percent, which it feels about right to me too. It's down in that range of films that you know I I don't give a whole lot of thought, and so that's about right. It's purgatory. Uh, that also says that it should be a one and a half star if I go by the algorithm for um, uh, Letterboxd dot com slash the next reel. I'm struggling with that. One and a half stars feels a little bit low to me, but maybe not too low. Thinking two stars. Oof. Okay. Well, where, I'm at a where, three. What are you? Four? I, You're I'm, at a four. No, Solid I'm, four and a half. <laughs> I'm three Six. and a like. Because I do have a lot of problems with it, but I still ended up enjoying it. So three and a like. Well, then let's give it a solid uh, two and a half, and you can have the like. So you are at a two and no like. I'm at a two. And, well, it doesn't matter whether my... Well, it does. I still... We average to a like. I, I Yes, but when I list them, does yours... Will it be a two plus, or is it just a two? It's just a two. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Like. I, uh, I'm glad uh, to... <laughs> I'm glad to have this movie out of the way. <laughs> uh, it sort of clears the decks so that we can move on to something else, which uh, is what? Yeah, we're going to be uh, jumping to a film that I think is off scoffed, um, but is going to be a fun one to revisit. This is 1991's Point Break, uh, a movie I have not watched uh, probably since college, but I remember having an awful good time with it. We are skipping Blue Steel, um, the Jamie Lee Curtis cop film, jumping over to Point Break uh, to discuss uh, surfing and bank robberies and shooting your gun up into the air and going, ARG! <laughs> I, uh, I've not watched this in years and years. When's the last time you've seen this? Yeah, it's probably college. I'm very excited to watch this movie again. Very excited. And I never saw the remake of, of Point Break either, which is also on my list for this week. Oh, I have wow. to. I'm going to see the whole the whole point break uh, i'm going to celebrate the whole canon if i can find the time i will throw that on as well as you should i think you should all right this was delightful andy uh thank you as always for your time uh, this whole show could not happen without the uh, fantastic hard work of all of those on the film board including uh, uh steven smart who runs the instagram program ben Stierick helping out over there and ben lott runs all things twitter and the blot spot, and of course, the next real theme, Ragtime Instrumental, which you can find uh, over on Eli Catlin's SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Now, I wasn't crazy about this movie, so I went with a five star. <laughs> and I enjoyed it, so I went with a one star. There you go. Should we go up or I, down? I, I think we should go down. Okay, then. Kick it off. Mine's a little bit long. I'm sorry about that, but I'm, I'm, I feel like I, this is, there's a sense of just sort of childlike exuberance in this review that I have to, I have to just kind of strap in and ride all the way through. I like that. Bob. Ride that horse, Pete. Bob wrote in on this one. <laughs> Ride that horse, Pete. <laughs> one of the best vampire movies around. Period. In my and you have to know there are no there's no punctuation. No no uh, capital letters in this review at all. Okay, that makes it fun. 
in my humble opinion, this is one of the finest vampire movies ever produced. Yes, it is very violent and gory, but why watch a vampire movie if it isn't? The acting is top-notch. The script is great. All in all, it's one of the finest vampire movies produced in the past 20 years or so. The whole idea of placing vampires in modern times and having them come on as cowboys and driving around in an RV was brilliant as far as I'm concerned. The love interest between the hero and the girl is wonderfully played out. There's not real sex in this movie, which, if not for all the violence and language, would probably rate the movie a PG-13 or something. I'm sure the hero would have loved to get the girl into bed. Unfortunately for him, the girl is a vampire and has other plans for him. There is humor laced throughout this movie, and if you listen carefully, you'll pick up on it. It's really difficult to make any horror movie and try to play it straight all the way through to have tried that with this movie with all the intensity and violence would have not worked i don't believe it's a wonderful horror movie and i am pleased to see they finally released it on dvd i guess voting for different movies via amazon to put on dvd does help do yourself a favor and purchase this dvd (laughs) that's sweet Right? I like that. <laughs> There's not any real sex in this movie, which should have been PG-13 or something. Right? That sounds like a 13-year-old girl. Right? But she had other plans for him. <laughs> oh, just, that's just brilliant. I love it. I, I love it. Too. Well, right. let me let me drop the drop things down notch then with my one star by E. Barrios, uh, who wrote in, if I could... I'd have given it a a quarter star. <laughs> Not zero. Quarter. Near Dark has to go down as one of uh, the worst horror movies of the 80s. Simply put, this movie is so slow and drawn out that I wanted one of the vampires, preferably May, to jump out of my television and bite me in the jugular just to get it over with. However, since that wasn't going to happen, the next best thing for me was to use the chapter jump button on my remote, which I used many times after the first hour. Rumor has it that Hollywood wants to do a remake of this dung flick. What are they thinking in Tinseltown? I mean, really? Well, as the old saying goes, you've been warned. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Dung flick? I don't think I've heard dung used in that context before. I don't think I have either. Dung flick fascinating it was a it's, maybe he's german maybe it's a dung flick dung flick it's a dung flick yeah yeah jawohl <laughs> thanks amazon i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>